Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We're going back into the world of football. We're going to preview Giants training camp. That's right, training camp's over this week. We're going to start with Big Blue. And I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by a great guest to talk about the Giants, the producer of the DA show on CBS Sports Radio and CMB on WFAN. Sean Moresh is back on the podcast. We'll be talking to Sean just a bit about all things Big Blue. I'm also going to be catching up with Martino Puccio this week. Martino is doing a documentary on Mariano Rivera, and Rivera just went into the Hall of Fame this weekend. We're going to talk a little bit about his career and this documentary, and we have an exclusive clip from that documentary to share with you guys. That's coming up later in the show. Be sure you're locked in until the very end of this week's two-minute drill. We're going to talk about the latest developments about the NFL's never-ending quest to get an 18-game schedule. I have my take on the latest idea and how stupid it is at the end of the show, but we'll get all started this week's opening tip where we're going to talk some trade deadline. MLB trade deadline next week. We'll set the landscape up a little bit right after this. Cleanup hitter Todd Frazier will come up. Frazier, big chopper to Crawford. Crawford will go the long way, and that'll end the inning. A standing ovation for Bumgarner. Nine strong in the books. Now they need a run to make him a winner. All right, we are back with this week's opening tip. That call is heard courtesy of Dwayne Kuyper and John Miller from the San Francisco Giants play-by-play team. Madison Bumgarner, prime trade target for a lot of teams at the deadline coming up. Going nine innings of one-run ball against the Mets on Thursday. Mets end up losing that game. Bungard did not get the wings. They went to extra innings. But the deadline is nine days away from today. We're recording on Monday, the 22nd. The deadline is on Wednesday, the 31st. And the situation is quite interesting right now. Number one, the we do not have a lot of clear sellers in this market because the National League is mostly blamed for this because the NL wildcard picture is a complete and utter mess. I mean, look at the standings right now. I have it pulled up right here. As of the 22nd, our first wildcard team, the Washington Nationals, are at 52-46. and 46. That's right. The number one wildcard, six games above 500. Number two, the Brewers, 53-48. and 48. They are a half game back. And they are a half game up on the St. Louis Cardinals, who are 51-47. and 47, And a tie... Virtual tie of the Philadelphia Phillies, 52 and 48. So, four games over 500 has you right in the thick of the National League wildcard race. And you can end up hosting the wildcard game if you play well right now, which is absolutely bananas. The National League, even the lousy Mets, who ruined the momentum they had to start this road trip when they started off 4 and 1 by winning four in a row against the Marlins and Twins, they dropped three out four on the weekend. They're only seven out of the wildcard race. They are tied with the Reds, the second-worst record in the National League, seven out. The only team in the NL is dead and buried is the Marlins. They're 15 out. The AL, yes, you have more sellers. You have the Baltimore Orioles, who stink, and they are dead and buried. Detroit Tigers are terrible. Royals are bad. Blue Jays are bad. Mariners are bad. White Sox are too far back at this point. So the problem is these teams don't have a lot of good stuff to sell you. We know, for example, the Yankees, they're out there looking for starting pitching. Where are you getting it? Right now, the Giants, the team that just beat the Mets up over the weekend, in case people have not noticed, they are red hot. 
They are at 500 right now. They are 50 and 50, two and a half games out of the wild card spot in the National League. They are tied with Diamondbacks. They trail the Phillies, Cardinals, and Brewers for that second spot. Now, this is the last year of the Giants' run here with Bruce Bochy. He's retiring at the end of this year. Why would they say, you know what, we're going to blow it up right now. We're going to trade Bumgarner and just give up. Why would they? They could say, you know what, we'll take one last run of glory. We'll get to the playoffs right now, and we can make it happen. And the problem here is the there is only one trade deadline now. The new tweaks they made to the CBA over the winter, they wipe out the waiver trade deadline in August. So July 31st is it. If you don't make a deal on July 31st, your guy stays. So right now, with nine days to go, unless something drastic happens here, I don't think Bumgarner's getting moved. He's staying put, and that takes the biggest piece off the board for the Yankees in terms of starting pitching. And the Met, they're not going to get from the Mets. I know Zach Wheeler's on the block, and we'll get to that in a second, but the, the Mets are not going to send him across town, despite what they want you to believe. They will not. The Indians are right in the mix of the AL wild card right now. They are in that four-team mess at the top. They're actually on top of the heap right now, leading the A's by a game for the second wild card, for the top wild card spot. Excuse me. They're not going to trade Trevor Bauer right now. That's off the table. You can get Mike Miner off the Rangers probably. Is that really appealing to you for the price you got to pay? Are you really thrilled about getting Marcus Stroman and paying a premium to get him off the Blue Jays in your division? that really appealing to the Yankees? I don't think so. I think what they might do instead is just go get another reliever because don't forget, they're still without Dylan Batanz who has not pitched at all this season. Add to the Super Bullpen and then try and make things happen that way and just do the Royal 2015 method. Just shorten the games as much as you can. Now, there's also been a theory floated out there that obviously they would love to have Luis Severino back at full strength, but it's just so late in the season right now He's not going to get there, most likely, to the point where he can be a workhorse in the playoffs. So, how's this for a theory? The Yankees, they've used the opener to great effect this year. I think they've lost maybe once, if that, with the opener pitching. In the division series, why don't we go with Chad Green as an opener, followed by Luis Severino for four or five innings? That's not bad. If you get that mix to get you to the fifth inning, then you can go with Zach Britton, Adam Adovino, Tommy Canely, Aroldis Chapman, get all those guys in there and get you the end of the game. That would not be a bad strategy for the Yankees to take. Plus, you could add another reliever to this mix, as I just said. I think that could very well be what they do here. The Mets, on the other hand, they can pretend they're in the race because they're only seven out. You say, you know, we have a good homestand against the Padres and the Pirates. They're both under 500. We go four and two. We're right there. Don't kid yourselves, guys. This trip exposed again that this is not a very good baseball team. The Mets are, simply put, a bad team because, like all bad teams, nothing comes together at the same time. The bullpen was bad for a while. It's pitching better. Over the weekend, what happens? They forget to hit in three games. That's what happens in bad teams. That's the case of the Mets. They should try and sell Zach Wheeler, and they will, but the timing of his trip to the injury list is brutal because right now, when you're trading a pitcher, and you see he lands on the injuries with a shoulder injury, that sends shutters down the spines of these other teams who are going to say, you know what, I'm not going to pay a premium for that guy. Why would I do that? The Mets are going to try and get him back in the rotation right now. The plan is for him to pitch on Friday. But if you're getting back nothing, 
Why do it? Seriously, why? That's what I want to know. I would rather keep him if you're not going to get much back. Extend the qualifying offer and try and keep him because if you plan on winning next year, and it sounds like that's still the plan. They haven't made it clear they want to punt yet. If that's the plan, do it. Keep him, extend him, and then figure out where to go from there. Jason Vargas, Todd Frazier, eh. You could keep him. You could get rid of him. I would personally get rid of him, get what you can, and get space to see, you know, can J.D. Davis be a everyday hitter and play against right-handed pitching because right now he plays against lefties. Get Walker Lockett, who had a good start against the Giants this weekend, get him some starts, see what he can be. May open a slot for Anthony Kane in September. But a lot of this comes down to what the Mets are willing to do here in terms of the money. In the past, guys like this who make a decent amount of change that are average kind of commodities, they dump the money and take lesser prospects back. They should do the opposite, but will they? I don't know. It's already leaking out that they seem like more interested in dumping the cash, but what else is new? The room mill is a bit quiet right now because there's not many big names out there due to the general nature of the NL, but expect the rumors to heat up this week. I would expect a lot of activity coming up in the next nine days. We will talk more about the trade deadline next week on the podcast. Up next, though, we're going to talk some football with Sean Marash. Talk a little Giants right after this. Ten of seven, Beckham's eighth reception. Now Barkley up the middle, cuts to the outside. Saquon Barkley across midfield, down the sideline, stayed in bounds, and Barkley takes it all the way. 68 yards for his first NFL touchdown. All right, we are back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. That call has heard Fox Sports' is Kenny Albert calling Saquon Barkley's first career NFL touchdown last season. The Giants are back in training camp this week. Barkley would be a big focus of them this season. Joining me today is one of the biggest Giant fans in this area. He's also a well-known radio personality from the DA show on CBS Sports Network. He produces for them, and he also produces for CMB on WFAN. I am pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Sean Marash. Sean, welcome. How are you today? What's going on? Boy, you got real football tickling through me after that highlight. Yeah, I'm so excited because I'm a Met fan. My season's basically over. Training camp is here, so I'm ready for some football. You got to have it. Yeah, luckily I'm a Yankee fan, so I could wait a little bit, but I'm still I'm still ready to go. Yeah, definitely a lot of interesting stuff going on with your Giants here. They had a very, very interesting offseason. So since you are more in on the Giants than I am, I'm going to ask you, what is your grade for the Giant offseason? I, I mean, if you were not allowed to give an incomplete, I would say uh, you'd have to give it a C. I mean, I... You want you wanted a new quarterback, or at least I did, somebody in there to take the reins of the future and be able to just kind of exhale and say, okay, the next guy after Eli Manning is here. Now, when he starts, well, that's to be determined. So from that standpoint, you know, I, I would grade it higher, but it is a little bit of an unknown with Daniel Jones. Did they reach at sixth? Should they have gone with Dwayne Haskins? And it's hard to give him an A even with completing that Daniel Jones, uh, you know, idea if on the other end of this, they got rid of Odell Beckham Jr. And, you know, recent articles now out with GQ, it seems like, you know, maybe that was a relationship that was unsalvageable. And clearly this is a guy who's a head case and wanted out. But when you get rid of the best player on your team, it's hard to give you a high grade, though I wish I could grade it higher because they took care of the biggest problem on the team, which was get the next quarterback in. Yeah, the next quarterback is in right now. They got Daniel Jones. There have been, a lot, I feel like, mixed messages about him because I've heard stuff he could sit for a year. I've heard that he could start week one. I don't know what they're going to do with him. What do you think that they want to do with Daniel Jones right now? 
I think ideally they they said it how many times they would love the quote unquote Kansas City model, right? Which is Patrick Mahomes sits for a year behind Alex Smith. Maybe the Giants have a good year, a playoff year behind a rebuilt offensive line. Eli Manning gets his proper farewell tour. How far that takes them, I don't know. I, I personally don't think it will take them very far. But you know, ideal world, that's what they hope for. They hope they can find a way into the playoffs with Eli and be able to give him a proper send off and prove everybody wrong, and then start Daniel Jones year two. Realistically. I think Daniel Jones probably ends up starting after the bye week in week uh, week 11 when they have a late bye, and he probably plays the last five games of the year, something like that. I think they give him that week to repair, and Eli has played the first 10 games of the year, and then there's Daniel Jones there to take over at the end when they've pretty much been mathematically eliminated. That kind of sounds like what happened with Eli Manning himself, I mean, back when Kurt Warren was the quarterback, and they actually think had a winning record when they let Manning take over. Right, right. Yeah. right. That, that was the difference. They were very much in the mix, but I think the Giants were smart enough at the time to realize, well, you know, we're probably not a Super Bowl team. You know, maybe we do get into the playoffs here with Kurt Warner, go play a road game or something like that as a wild card. But for them, they took a step back and said it's it's going to behoove us more to get Eli in there and take the loss. But the, Eli Manning was more ready to go. He was the number one overall pick and played in the SEC and Ole Miss. You know, playing the ACC with Duke, uh, Daniel Jones's numbers are a little misleading. He didn't exactly have a bunch of you know money targets around him the way you know anybody in the SEC would like Eli Manning. So I think that's why it's a little unknown, and I think that's why there's some skepticism around Daniel Jones because we haven't seen him play with elite talent yet. So it really is just a matter of, of when they feel he's ready and if they accept that the fan base is ready to move on. Which at this point, if you're not, I, I don't know what you're thinking as a Giant fan. Yeah, I feel like most of the Giant fans are ready to move on now. I, mean, I think back in like. 2017 when he got benched for Geno Smith. I feel like there was a big outroar then. Now I feel like they're like, okay, we've realized that now he's past his prime. We have to move on here. Right, but they're still, they're still, and they called me the Ehive. There's still going to be those Eli Manning fans that, because they've added Kevin Zeitler and, and because the offensive line looks a heck of a lot different, they're going to say, well, hold on here. Don't be so quick. Now we see Eli with an offensive line. But the truth is, look, you know, guys get older. Just because Tom Brady's playing until he's 43 years old or Drew Brees plays over 40 doesn't mean Eli Manning is. Eli Manning never missed a game. He didn't miss a whole season like Tom Brady. He's taken his lumps. He's taken his beatings. Everybody's body is different. It's just at some point you have to accept that no matter how many excuses you throw out there, offensive line, drops, defense, this, that, and the other thing, the time has come to move on. And, and hopefully that creates for an exciting preseason here where you get to see what Daniel Jones is made of. And more or less an exciting season where even if they stink, you have the end of Eli Manning, which you'll root for him hard, and you'll have the beginning of Daniel Jones. So no matter what, you know, turning the page at least, no matter what the record is this year, provides some intrigue around the Giants. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I like I kind of like the direction they took with the offense, where they were trying to go bombs away with Odell Beckham and have this deep passing game. Now they kind of remade their team a little bit with Saquon Barkley as the focus of the offense. They brought in Golden Tate to help bring in the short passing game a bit more. Do you like that direction? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be so quick to say that they're they're not going to go bombs away. I, the reason they... Remember, Odell Beckham caught a lot of slants, and he would turn small plays into big plays. The reason they couldn't go bombs away is, frankly, Eli Manning had no time to get rid of the ball, and that was his strength was the deep ball. I wouldn't be so surprised if Golden Tate being brought in as a way to give Sterling Shepard a little more separation on the outside, go bombs away to Sterling Shepard, get Evan Ingram up on some seam routes, and you know all this while they're hoping teams try to play in the box and attack Saquon Barkley. Maybe that actually opens up the deep passing game. Uh, I honestly look at the way this offense is structured, especially with the interior offensive line of Will Hernandez now back, John Jalapio, and Kevin Zeitler that they added. Maybe that gives a little more time for Eli down the middle deliver some more deep throws, and I think minus Odell Beckham Jr., kind of by default, uh, will open up things for Sterling Shepard and Evan Ingram deeper and uh, and have teams playing short and letting them hit more deep balls than they have in the past. 
You also think it's a little more Patriot-like in the sense that, like, there's not one big mouth you have to feed where we have to get Beckham his 13 targets a game. Now it's like, we'll get him open, we'll throw, take the ball, we'll get Barkley on the screens, we'll get Evan Ingram routes down the middle. I feel like it's more balanced. And look, you always want game-breakers and you want somebody to take the attention away, but maybe it's not the worst thing in the world if they don't have a guy you, quote-unquote, have to double-team. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like the more the pages have shown, it works. So if, as long as you have the right mix of guys, you can make anything happen. Yep. Well, they also have Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if the Giants have that, but don't Tom will tell. Yeah, we'll see if Pat Shermer can become a better coach in that regard. But they also did a good job building the offensive line, which a couple years ago was a train wreck. I feel they've done a good job sort of rebuilding it over oh. the last year. You can make a strong case that outside of the running game with Saquon Barkley, obviously that the offensive line now as it stands entering the 2019 season is the Giants' strongest part of their team. I mean, you look up and down, that defense has a lot of young, unproven guys. I think some guys are going to step up, but you know, pass rush is going to be an issue. They should be okay stopping the run, but offensively, okay, the receivers are nice with Shepard and Golden Tate, obviously, and their run game is obviously great, and quarterback's very much up in the air, but the offensive line itself might be the strength of this team, which is crazy to say when you think of where they came from two, three, four years ago. Yeah, it's just insane, because I remember that back even last year in the opening week against Jacksonville, like Eli's running for his life, and now he might actually have time to stand back there and throw. Right, which is also a scary thing for all the Eli defenders that don't think he's done. Boy, if Eli Manning doesn't deliver, and I, I think for the most part he won't fully, what is the excuse going to be now? Because if this offensive line sits in there and they give him time and it's still duck pass after duck pass, it's going to be a bad look for anybody falling on the Eli Mountain now. Yeah, for sure. Let's go to the defensive side of the ball for a minute. So, obviously, they brought in a lot of new pieces on that defense. So, they got also got rid of Landon Collins, which was controversial because people thought we could have traded him at the deadline, gotten a pick back. Instead, he goes to Washington for huge money. So, do you like what they're doing on the other side of the ball? I do. I think they're getting there. A lot of people have soured on the defense because they don't know the names, and and that's fine. And I still think ultimately they're going to need a big-time pass rusher. But guess what? Next draft, when all these teams flock up for the big quarterback class that everybody thought the Giants would be in on, the Giants might be sitting there for the best pass rusher that nobody's talking about right now. That happens every year. There's always a big pass rusher or two in the draft. So I think we're a year away from finding the big pass rusher. But as far as the defense goes, Look, they got Dexter Lawrence now. We'll take that Snacks Harrison role, clog up the middle. Dalvin Tomlinson was an excellent player now the last two years, and B.J. Hill was a revelation at rookie. You throw in there, they signed Marcus Golden, who a couple years ago had a lot of sacks in the James Betcher's defense, and maybe he gets something back in the ACL, maybe he doesn't. It costs you nothing. And Lorenzo Carter, who was a third-round pick last year. I mean, how many drafts in a row did Jerry Reese whip on, whip on third-round picks? Last year, Gettleman's first draft, and see what you want to say, it appears he hit with Lorenzo Carter and B.J. Hill two third-round picks. And if Carter could be a stud on the outside at the outside linebacker position, maybe rack up 10, 11 sacks, well, that changes things on this defense. And as far as the secondary goes, they let go of Landon Collins, but this secondary is light years better than where it was a year ago when you consider that now it's safety to get your Pearl Peppers, which you know he still maybe hasn't hit his full potential, but he's still very solid safety. They have a veteran, Antoine Bidet, who probably only be there for a year, hold the ground. But how about the cornerback position? Janoris Jenkins, even if you think he's lost a step, still, I would say, a top half of the league corner. And now on the other side, a guy like Sam Beal, who used a supplementary pick on a year ago, has been through the uh, entire year with injury, looking at the system. And then they drafted Dallas Baker in the first round, throwing Julian Love, the kid out of Notre Dame, and suddenly they're really deep in the secondary. May not be names that you know right now, but by November, we might be looking around at the Giants' secondary going, damn, they got a good secondary. They really just have to build with the pass rush. So I like the direction the defense is headed in. It's probably one year away. But I think the defense can surprise some people this year at times. 
Yeah, the secondary is very intriguing. They brought in a lot of new faces there. I like the Sam Beal thing, especially because I heard reports that people said that at least scouts are saying, you know, like he would have been a high pick in this year's draft if he'd stayed and not gone out for supplemental reasons. And now you think, you know, if your secondary is good, maybe you can do what the Jets were doing back in the early, like, 2010-2009 era where you have coverage sacks where your defense covers so well you get time for the front fries to get there. You can never have too many corners in this league, and right now they're deep. Again, the big, if they had one stud pass rusher on the defense, I think it would totally change the way people looked at things. But again, that's why I circle Lorenzo Carter. I hate to put pressure on a kid who was a third-round pick a year ago, but he flashed last year, and he's going to get a lot more chances to flash this year. And if he does, I, that's where I really think this defense surprised people. And I think James Betcher's system overall is going to create you know, more out of its players than what we just see in the names in the back of the jerseys. Absolutely, and obviously they're playing in the NFC East, very competitive division year after year. Last year, Dallas won it. Philly made the playoffs again a year after winning the Super Bowl. So what do you think the Giants can do in the division this year? (sighs) Pray. No, I mean, (laughs) honestly, best-case scenario for them winning the division is – Obviously, you need a couple injuries, I think, to go Dallas and Philly's way. And I think the Giants get off to a hot start and build confidence. If you look at the beginning of their schedule, they play Dallas week one. We've seen this game a million times. You know, those games are always crapshoots. Who knows if they win or lose. But the next three games after that, I really think the Giants need to start three and one. They're going to play the Bills. They're going to play the Bucks. And I believe, geez, it's slipping my mind. It was another very winnable game. It might have even been Arizona, although they might be later in October. It's a shame. I don't have it in front of me. But... If you looked at the schedule and you circled it, that that's something where they could have been. They could be three and one. The last couple of years, I mean, they're zero and four. They're one and three the last two years, and it's demoralizing to a locker room to put in all that work in training camp, come out, and suddenly you're so behind the eight ball trying to play catch up come October. Be ahead of the game, build some confidence, build some belief again, and I think that changes the culture. And then that's where something where maybe they get a surprise, couple breaks and and wins that you wouldn't expect normally in October or November. You know, a game like the Pats. You know, maybe you get some Eli Magic again. That's the best-case scenario. They have no shot at winning the division if they come out flat like they have in September the last couple of years. Come out strong. Take advantage of opponents that are, at, at, at worst, equal to you, if not better than. Yeah, I pulled the schedule up while you were talking here. You're right about the first quarter schedule being very winnable for them. They had at Dallas, Buffalo at home, which you mentioned, at Tampa. Then the fourth game is home against the Redskins, who are obviously Correct. Dealing, you go. dealing with a questionable quarterback situation with either Case Keenum or Dwayne Haskins, which that should be a winnable game for the Giants. Right, so if you look at that, I mean, look, if the Giants can't come out of that 3-1, and one, I, I'm, forget the 2-2. Two and two. I know Giants fans are talking about that. If you're not 3-1 and one into the four, first four games, you've got no shot at winning this division. No shot. Uh, you have to take advantage on teams that, again, even if you're not better than, at worst, are equal to. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to take advantage of it because the Giants have seen the last few years. If you get off to a bad start, it can be very hard to overcome. Right, and and by the way, you got off to a bad start last year with Pat Shermer. You've had Odell Beckham publicly call out Pat Shermer. Do you need those guys in the locker room openly questioning whether Beckham on his way out the door was right and if they're feeling the same thing they felt a year ago? It's demoralizing to a locker room, and maybe that's the case. Maybe that ends up the energy plug is going to Daniel Jones earlier, but if they come out of a 3-1, and one, suddenly you have a little belief, and maybe things change this year. Yeah, it's why I love talking about football in July, because everybody can win the Super Bowl in July. Of course, yeah. of course. Well, that's the best part of the NFL. And frankly, what's going to be awesome about the NBA this year is it suddenly is a little parody. Yes, parody is great. Sean, thanks for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, do you want everybody to know how to find on social media and some of the stuff you're up to? 
Yeah, you can check me out on Twitter at MrazCBS, M-R-A-Z-C-B-S. Uh, check me out with uh, CMB, Carl and Maggie and Bart, 1 to 3 p.m. afternoons with WFAN. I'm usually there with my Yankee thoughts. And uh, on CBS Sports Radio, Series XM 206 from 9 a.m. till noon, I run uh, with DA over there on the DA show. And, uh, you know, post a plenty of clips in case you missed the shows and stuff on YouTube as well at CBS Sports Radio. So thanks a lot for the plug. Thanks again, Sean. I really appreciate it. Take care. All right, there we have it. That was Sean Marash from CBS Sports Network and WFAN talking Giants football. Up next, we're going to talk a little baseball with Martina Puccio, specifically about Mariano Rivera right after this. The 1-0. Swung on. Hit in the air to left center. Bernie trots over. Curtis is there. Curtis makes the catch. Ball game over. World Series over. Yankees win. The Yankees win. The New York Yankees for the second straight year, for the third time in the last four years, and for the 25th time in their glorious history, have once again reached the pinnacle of the sports world. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. That classic call you heard from John Sterling, the longtime Yankee play-by-play announcer, Mariano Rivera. Gets in the Hall of Fame this weekend. Back then, records the final out of the Yankees' 1999 World Series title over the Atlanta Braves. Rivera has won five World Championships in his career. And he is the subject of a documentary being shot by our next guest, the great Martino Puccio is back with us. Martino, welcome. How are you? Hey, thanks, Mike. Um, I'm, pr- I'm pretty happy you didn't use the 2000 clip there. Warmer 1999. Prefer the Braves losing the World Series. Over, uh, the Mets yeah, that Met one was a little triggering when I watched it. So I said, you know, I'll go with the Brave flip. Watching him beat the Braves <laughs> is more fun. It, it always is more fun, yes. Yeah, so it's been a while since I talked to you on the podcast. How's everything going for you? Um, not, uh, Everything's going pretty well, you know. Just dealing with the heat wave this summer right now. This, this past week has been pretty brutal outside. But, you know, just progressing everything. Um you know, podcast-wise for myself and then recording the documentary, obviously. Yeah, that documentary, obviously, the big highlight of this documentary that we've seen to date was the your video of the reaction from Mariano's family when he finds out that he is the first ever unanimous Hall of Famer. That clip, by the way, was on E60 over the weekend on Sunday morning, on Hall of Fame Sunday, and has now been seen almost 1.5 million times on Twitter, which is absolutely insane. Yeah, um, I still can't believe it. I I watch it kind of often just to see, like, how insane it actually is. You know, I I mean, I try not to be biased with it or whatever, but it's really, like, it was such a cool moment, and to have it just, like, seeing all these, like, platforms or, or, you know, like, companies wanting to use the clip all the time, is it's kind of surreal, and the fact that uh, it's really stretched out for this long just been awesome it's a it's a moment i'll never forget it's a moment he'll never forget you know for everyone involved this is a very cool moment uh, in baseball yeah absolutely and obviously goes in the hall of fame this week along with the rest of the class mike Bucina, harold baines edgar martinez morris that whole crew and like that group i mean of all of them rivera far and away the most accomplished of that group i mean career saves leader the best postseason club of all time i mean uh, just in terms of the back of the baseball card, I don't think there's a clearer candidate to be the first 100% than Mariano Rivera right now. Um, no, I mean that 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 class he was with um, for this year. I mean they were they were great players in their own right. 
not many of them went on the first time, let alone, you know, 100%. It took Mussina a couple of years, Edgar Martinez, you know, Lee Smith, uh, Harold Baines. Like, these, these weren't, like, shoe-in guys that, you know, like, immediately went up on the ballot. They're going in. And, um, but, yeah, I mean, he was just easily the most no-brainer. And, and the funniest part is, you could argue, he was the least heralded prospect out of all of them when he was coming up. You know, he wasn't this marquee guy that, oh, look out for him, Baseball America, whoever's like, uh, you know, has him on their top 100 scouting list. He, Brian Cashman talked about it in the E60 story. Like, he was really an afterthought. He was never looked at as this kind of guy that would be the greatest that ever was at his position. Yeah, a lot of people don't remember this. That Mario Rivera came as a starting pitcher. He was not exactly in the bullpen from the get-go there. No, yeah, and even even when he did move to the bullpen, he wasn't even the closer. It was John Wetland for the Yankees. So four out of the five World Series that he won, he recorded yeah a final out four times, but the only time he didn't was in 1996 because Wetland was the closer. So even then it took a little bit of time until he really like solidified himself once he figured out the, cover, the cutter and discovered that, which was, you know, I mean, it speaks for itself. Yeah, it's also crazy to think about all Rivera's moments in his career. I think the one that gets brought up the most often is the one time in the postseason he failed in 2001 in Game 7 against the Diamondbacks. I feel like despite all the great saves he had against the Red Sox, closing out World Series. The average average fan, they go to 2001, but if you're a Red Sox fan, they all go to the Dave Roberts deal, which isn't even in the same realm. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just DRA is just so absurd in the playoffs. You know, like I see idiots all the time on Twitter trying to be like, oh, Kimbrell's better than him. And then you just, I mean, just Kimbrell's 2018 postseason alone is just awful and doesn't even keep him in, even in the level of some of these guys, you know, forget Mariano. So, I mean, it's just really insane on how it's not even a debate when you just think about it. So, yeah, I mean, just the one blemish, I mean, it is what it is. You know, that was a crazy series to begin with anyway. So, I mean, you win and lose as a team, it's never really about that but yeah i mean it that is the one they look at for sure yeah i mean just think about it just speaks the fact of how great he was that like we can only remember like the one or two times he messed up whereas like other closers like jesse orozco remember him throwing his fist in the air after the mets win the 86 world series and yeah he tosses his glove up you know know, they all remember that stuff when mariano's got five of those yeah he's he's got five of those and countless other big playoff victories he just made it look so easy that we just didn't remember because there's so many of them you can't pick one alcs mvp as well i mean it's you know, the, the the greatest stat that everyone likes to bring up, too, there's uh, been more men to walk on the moon than guys who have crossed home plate and scored against Mariano in the playoffs. Like, postseason, or, or it might be the World Series. It's just absolutely insane. You don't even think about it. It's every time, like, it, you know, like, everybody knew it was over the second he came in, you know? It's like, and when it did happen, like, 2001, it was absolutely stunning. It was more stunning than... The Yankees winning three out of four World Series. You know, it's just, that's how good he was. Yeah, and obviously, the Hall of Fame did it right. Let him close out the ceremony yesterday, put him last. So what was your reaction to his speech yesterday? Um, Kind of what I would expect him to be. Kind of was similar to along the lines of what he was talking about in the interview. You know, I covered everything on him from, you know, his young childhood in Panama all the way up to now. Um, pleasant time, everything he's just talking about, it's just 
how much respect and humbleness that he has um, for teammates, friends, family, um, where he came from, the perspective that he had, his drive to win, anything he did. Um, and just really, like, a lot of it was based on his faith and just, you know, he's a real nice, humble guy and all that, but one thing I really learned from him, and you kind of saw it in, in this speech, too, is how determined he was to be as great as he was. I, I mean, it's just you have to have that drive, especially when you're not born with the most talent like he was. You know, he wasn't throwing a 95, 98 when he was coming up. You know, he was still in the sitting low 90s. It took time for him to build that up. Five years in the minor leagues, you know, being sent down twice, failed starter, not even a, a closer initially, you know, and then discovering the cutter. You know, it's a whole journey. So to just see that in him kind of document it and him closing it out, you know, he's, he's funnier than you would think because when you, when you look back and remember what he was like in interviews and stuff like that, he's very serious, you know, like just worried about winning and winning only. He didn't get to really see the kind of personality that he, that he has as a caring, funny guy. You know, it was more of like just what you saw was he came in to close the game and that was it. Um, so, I mean, it, it was cool that everybody got to see that side of him. Because I like that, like people get to see that side of of athletes that we don't normally see, especially for a guy that's so legendary like him. Yeah, for sure. And just to reset for some of our new listeners here, I know we had a few since the last time you've been on. Last time we talked about this project specifically. So, like, what was your story here? How did you end up in the room with Rivera during the Hall of Fame call? So, like, how do you end up saying I'm going to do my documentary on Marion Rivera? Okay, so. Initially, obviously, in the program that we're in for Iona, um, for grad school, everybody has to have a thesis once you finish your classes. So the thesis is basically the final, the final step. You know, the closing, the closing part. Ironically enough, you know, choose a mo uh, of your degree. And um, you know, I we've known Mariano for years. Me and my family, my youngest brother's um, best friends with his youngest son. We help him out. My father runs his own distribution business so whenever they need food or pastries and stuff like that we give it to them for a defense or um you know he signs baseballs and jerseys and donates them to you know like some school fundraisers and stuff to help raise money um so I, so so i've known him for a while i've obviously met him from time to time um and you know he's always willing to help um and the crazy part about um the hall of fame phone call was that he was saying how he had so many people asking him, you know, from MLB Network, yes, Panama TV, you know, local TVs all around the area. Hey, what are we coming over to film it? And then he was uncomfortable with anyone being there but me because um, he wanted me to be there. You know, I asked him about it, um, and he said he was more than welcome wanting me there. You know, the clip that you saw in E60 is a little bit different than the clip that I recorded and uploaded to Twitter on the phone. It's a different angle. We have it mic'd up. It's on a better camera. That'll be in the documentary itself. But um, just him allowing us to be there and just to capture that moment was great. I had a good feeling going into that day, you know. I, uh, whoever that Boston writer was, uh, at, once we realized he uh, reversed his his alleged uh, uh, vote against Mariano and then him, him putting him as a yes. Um, I had a good feeling that um, all the public ballots that were out, you know, he was in. There was not one that said they weren't putting him in. And then, lo and behold, Jeff O'Connor 
started. He didn't even get to finish his sentence. <laughs> you can see it in the clip, and they knew immediately. Everybody knew immediately, and uh, you know, the rest is history. The rest, the rest is history, as they do say. So, what do you have a title in mind for this piece yet? Do you have a title in mind? You're going to call it when it's done. <laughs> if most most people know me, I'm not the most creative uh, person in terms of that kind of stuff. So. Title, I'm just going to keep it to Mo. Um, I'm sure if you've seen some of the clips that I've uploaded for teasers um, on certain things, like I've uploaded on Facebook and Twitter, it was last week of um, some of the charity stuff. I think you have the clip that you'll be playing soon about uh, about it. Um, at the end of the teaser part, it, uh, I just have the graphic up at the end of it for Mo. I don't think there's really anything else. You could you know, have a title that would be a little too long for that. I mean... It is what it is, you know, it's Mo, it's about his life, it's about his career, his philanthropic work, all the stuff that he does now, trying to help anybody he can in any way he can, and that's just kind of the story that I want to tell. Yeah, I'm sure it must be a lot of fun working with Mariano on this project. So what has it been like working with him throughout this process? I mean, it's a little different, you know. I've, I've met with athletes and, and like, higher-profile people before, and and it just you know it, it's a little different with them because I don't know him on a personal basis, but on a personal basis with him, it's it you know it's just fun. It's just a friend of mine, and you know getting to know about him, and then you know I, I obviously like step back to think like I'm I'm very fortunate. I can't I can't be any luckier than anybody, you know, in the world to just even get the opportunity to do this. Um, so the fact that he just like has me there. We were up in his house recording. Uh, Mike Demergis was with us. I know you've had him on the podcast here a couple of times. For him, he'll tell you he thought it was the coolest thing when we were sitting down in the interview um, for the documentary. You know, um, for me, it was just you know, it was just, it was just cool. It was just you know, getting to know more about your friend in a sense. Even if you and I were to be talking, you tell me about everything about your life. You know, that whole. Everything about that is is just cool, but but I understand for the average person, it's just, I mean, it's just really like fascinating to hear where he was coming from, what did he do as a kid, you know? Because he he's you know these guys are really just like us. They just are so fantastic at one level uh, or one job in their life that you know they get more publicized. But really, at the end of the day, you know, he's just a regular guy who likes to go to church, but to help people out, and it's funny, you know, he's funnier than you would think, so, yeah, I mean, there's not much else to say, he's just, he, he is what he is, he's just Mariano in the flesh, and I, I guess I got kind of used to it over the, over the course of time, but never do I ever take it for granted that, uh, I have the opportunity to do this. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would kill to have the access you have to Rivera, which, I mean, he doesn't give out just, like, willy-nilly, so that's a big, big thing. No, yeah, of course. That interview they were using in 860, that was from 2010. They didn't get a new interview to get with him, you know? The, mo- the most recent part of that interview or clip was the phone call. So, I mean, he it's very difficult to get him to sit down and talk to him, you know, because he's so busy doing everything else with his church, um, charities, just any other kind of work like that. So, yeah. Yeah, so you obviously talked to him a lot for this prize. So what's one of the most interesting things he's told you so far? Would definitely be, for me, my favorite part was him coming up to the Yankees farm system. You know, 
growing up and playing in the, in the same like minor league system, you know, getting him getting to know guys like Bernie, Jorge Posada, like Jeter, um, Pettit, all these core four guys, everything they've learned about, you know, what it took for them to win, that they, that the Yankees just instilled this winning way of, obviously it worked because of how, how often they won. We haven't seen it since in baseball. There's a good chance we might not see that for a very long time. So I think just him talking about his journey there, coming over here, talking about how he had to learn English, um, just adapting to life while, while his wife, um, was raising their youngest child. I mean, it's just, it's very difficult if you know what minor league baseball is like. It's not really as lucrative as some people would like to think, especially if you're not a top prospect coming out getting highly drafted. You're on buses all the time for hours, traveling all over the country, playing in all these small venues and in, in the middle of nowhere towns. So I always find the fascinating journey in baseball of where you start and then finally getting to the big leagues. I, I think it's more rewarding than any other sport by far. I, I don't think it comes close. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And he's also talked a lot about his charity work in your project, and you were fortunate enough, I'm very fortunate, you gave me a clip, an exclusive clip here for something he discussed about some of his plans for charity work in this very area. So I'm going to play that clip right now, and then I'll let you talk about it. Well, I mean, uh, be, con be, be aware of, or be in the lookup of the, uh, we wanted to build a learning center okay. for the community in New Rochelle. And, uh, you know, definitely we are uh, trying to help as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that this place is going to be uh, something special for the youngsters in New Rochelle and the, uh, the neighborhoods around. Mm -hmm. So uh, I hope and I pray that the Lord Grandos that place and uh, uh, keep the kids, the kids uh, safe and the weekend uh, do a, a good job for them. So parents will be uh, some type of mind relief because the kids are in a great place. So I mean, we wanted to do just bless people and bless others and be and be helpful for the community. That's what we want. So I mean, uh, be on the lookout for that. And yeah, I think that about sums it up in a nutshell about how like great a guy Rivera is and all the good things he wants to do for the community. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of where he came up when he started his career when he when he was with the Yankees. You know. Obviously, he didn't start getting that great money till later on. So, you know, he was in New Rochelle with a smaller house. Um, you know, they're having a parade for him this Saturday, by the way, um, where uh, in New Rochelle, they're going to give him the key to the city. I, I'm surprised he didn't get that earlier. But it, it makes sense now, you know, like just because it was the last step of his career. But just everything he does over there, um, there's more stuff in the documentary of kind of the stuff that he does at his church that's in New Rochelle. Um, I'm going to be mentioning more of uh, the other stuff where uh, kids, when they go back to school, they, they do the backpack um, initiative where people give the give students who are less fortunate backpacks and all the stuff that they need for school, whether it's notebooks, folders, um, calculators, pens, erasers, whatever, whatever it is that students need, um, he helps give them it. And, I mean, even on his Instagram, too, you know, I mean, he's finally using social media more often. Uh, he's almost... 
at 90,000 followers. So he's really using that um, to spread the word about a lot of these things. And, you know, it, it's really all he cares about is just helping other people. And there's, there's not much else you could say to that. Um, you just got to tip your cap to the guy. Yeah, you absolutely have to. And, I mean, obviously this project, it's a lot very rewarding, but I'm sure it's very challenging as well. So what are some of the unique challenges you had to deal with trying to make the, put this all together, make it all happen? Um, I think it would definitely be the part, you know, because he's such a busy guy and some of the guys that I've talked to and interviewed as well for this is, um, you know, it's kind of people, people are adults. And when, you, when you're doing this all alone and, and it's, you know, budget budgetless, but at the end of the day, it's something I love. So it, it's not as challenging as I would think. I have a vision for it. I, like, I, I'm timely with the clips that I pull out, put out and stuff. But I think the most challenging part is, you know, making a schedule for it, executing that schedule, and then really, you know, finishing off the editing because you, you know it as well. You edit video, you edit audio. It, it takes a lot longer than you would think, you know, because the end product is usually a minute to two minutes with certain things, but a lot of people don't realize behind the scenes it takes hours, and especially with this, it takes weeks and months uh, to do everything. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. that would definitely be the most challenging part. Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, I started my own project, and now I'll get into that down the line. But who else have you talked to about this project besides Mariano? Well, Mariano's uh, the main the main person to go with it, but finally got uh, in with Mark Malusis. Um, obviously, he used to work at WFAN um, during Mariano's career. Um, he's now with CBS, and then he does uh, a lot of stuff with SNY. Um, he gave great insight, not only as a Yankees fan, um, perspective, but a member of the media, you know, because it's, it's one thing to look at as an athlete, um, as a fan, you know, you look up to them, you don't see them as doing no wrong, but then when you're in the media, you know, the relationship is very different as many people would tell you, but the great thing about Moose that I'll, that I'll tell you, that I'll say from it is just the fact that he says the same thing pretty much everyone has ever said about Mariano. He handles everything with class, and he is the greatest that has ever done it, and there's nothing close to it. And just his whole story from beginning to end is just honestly one of the most amazing, unbelievable stories in sports history. And, and yeah, um, and then another person that I hopefully will be interviewing within the next week or two will be Rick Cerrone. Obviously, he's been on your podcast as well. Um, Rick used to be the former PR director for the New York Yankees. Perfect insight. This is because, as you know, Rick is a great storyteller in himself. Um, so just the perspective of working with Mariano, especially in PR, when, when you know you have athletes in New York City, they can get in a lot of trouble. It could cause up a lot of stirs and stuff like that, stories with John, George Steinbrenner, and just like the way how, how easy Mariano to handle um, in terms of a person who who is in charge of PR, and you know, those Yankees when when Rick was the PR director '96 to 2006, those were the greatest sports teams I have ever seen. Most likely, or, or some of them, you, you know, the Warriors, the Patriots now. But I mean, just when you look at how baseball is these days, and how we haven't had a repeat winner since the Yankees. Um, I mean, it speaks volumes of, to what the teams were like and all the stories that 
I'll be hearing and, you know, you'll, everyone will be seeing in the documentary. I'm just very excited about that. And I think I've gotten everyone that I could have wanted for this uh, to tell the story. So, yeah, I'm just very excited to get that wrapped up and then, you know, hit the home stretch here in the next few weeks. Yeah, friends of the podcast, Rick Cerrone and Mark Lewis, is very excited to hear from them in this. So when is your target here you want to get this out there for? I mean, I think it all really depends on when I'm talking to Rick um, and how long the interview goes. Because Rick, as you know, can tell stories for a long time. So oh, yes. Whatever he has, I have to, you know, kind of pick and choose what's good enough because we have a, we have a time frame of 10 to 15 minutes, you know. So i got to pick what works, what doesn't work. Uh, you know, I have good enough B-roll. I'll be having pictures in there that I have uh, from his family. Um, great pictures from Panama uh, when he was younger, just the area that he was in and then he grew up in. Um, so, yeah, um, hopefully within the time frame, early fall, hopefully, you know, it, it just really depends within the coming weeks. But I hopefully am trying to get it done within the coming weeks. The clips are already, you know, kind of set up in chronological order, which is which is great for me the way I had it. So it's just really writing down the script for the narration, putting in the B-roll and everything else there. Um, I should be able to get it done within the next few weeks, hopefully. Yeah, looking forward to seeing it. That's going to be a lot of fun. Martino, thanks for all the time. Before I let you go, trade deadlines next week. You, like me, are a big Mets fan. What do you mm-hmm. think What do you think is going to happen with the Mets? Well, obviously, we're not stupid here. Um, they have to be sellers. Um, but all the guys they're really selling are, you know, expiring contracts. I think Zach Wheeler's friggin' value is in the, in the gutter. It's in the drain, man. Uh, there's nothing you can really get for him. Um, is he worth moving? I don't know. I don't even know if he's worth extending the qualifying offer to in, in the fall. You know, there's a lot of question marks here. But there's no question they have to sell. Um, that farm system... It might be a little bit better than what the average fan thinks, but it's still not good enough. So anytime you're able to get a prospect on, you know, with some other teams out west in the NL or even in the central, if you can get some, like, dis- decent, you know, mid-level prospects, I think you do it. I don't see a guy like Noah Syndergaard being traded right now. This is the worst season he's had in his career. You can't sell low on this stock. I don't think a team like the Yankees that, they probably wouldn't even do a deal with them anyways just because they're that stubborn. I don't really think they can get that much right now um, in terms of that stock. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this, their, their hands are really tied and can't really blame anyone but Brody Van Wagner and the Wilpons. This, is, this falls all on them again. So, I mean, I just hope he lines up breaks uh, all the team records and hopefully DeGrom finishes top five for Cy Young again. That's really all I'm looking forward to. There's, there's not much else. Just a few bright spots and Hopefully things change. Yeah, I mean, you never know. It's just another pathetic season again. I mean, what can you say? Yeah, what can you say? Martina, thanks again for all the time. Before I let you go, do you, want to, do you want to let everybody know how to follow you on social media, some of the stuff you're up to? Yes, you can follow me on social media at Martino Puccio. Mike retweets some of my stuff um, every now and then whenever I upload a Mariano video. I should be getting, I want to get one more clips. I might get something up from Moose uh, in the interview I did with him and then hopefully Rick. And then eventually uh, the whole uh, documentary will be up on YouTube. Uh, it'll be on Facebook as well. Um, thanks for having me on. Always appreciate it. Always fun. Wish the mess were better. Have uh, more fun conversations on that topic. Uh, thanks again, Mike. 
All right, that was Martino Puccio on his documentary about Mariano Rivera. We'll keep an eye out for that. Hopefully when it comes out, we'll get him back on after we review the film and get some more insights on that. Up next, this week's two-minute drill about why the NFL is extremely dumb for attempting to go to an 18-game schedule. We'll go to that right after this. All right, we are back on this week's two-minute drill. That was the NFL on CVS theme. We are getting close to football again. This week was the last weekend without a football game of any kind between now and February 2020. That is a wonderful thought to hear right now. And And I'm so excited about football right now because, let's be honest, my baseball season is over. It's been done for a couple of weeks now. The Mets have been trying to tease us, saying they might get back in here, but they're done. I'm ready for some football right now, and the NFL, it just has everything so right with how they have it set up. Yes, the preseason is way too long. We don't need four games. We definitely don't, but at the same time, you have the perfect regular season schedule, 16 games over 17 weeks, just the perfect length. You don't feel like you need more. You got just enough to satisfy you. Then you have a good playoff. You get the Super Bowl. A lot of fun coming up there. And it is great. But there are worrying signs here going on. Mostly coming out of the owner's side of the NFL right now. Because they are still pursuing the thing that has been sort of the Moby Dick for them over the past year. The 18-game schedule. And it's so funny because the fans don't want this. The fans, by an overwhelming majority, have said on polls, everywhere you look, that we don't want 18 games. 16 is fine. The players, for obvious reasons, don't want those extra games. But the owners do because the owners see dollar signs in their eyes and you just see the dollar signs popping up out of their heads going, you know what? We can make extra money. Let's take that chance because that's an extra home day for everybody. An 18-game scale means nine home games out of eight, and that's extra money in your pockets. That's also extra games for the league to sell onto TV networks. And they're thinking, you know what? Football is the most recession-proof, ratings-proof product on the market right now. So these TV networks want to get eyeballs. They will pay for more football. We will make more money. And we will all thrive on it. Now, in order to address these safety concerns, which is a big reason why the players don't want to do this, NFL owners have sort of come up with this idea has been floated of late and was reported on most recently by Peter King in his weekly column on NBC Sports is Football Morning in America on Mondays. The proposal is that they get an 18-game schedule where the players, most of them, the exceptions here obviously are kickers and punters, only play 16 games. So basically, you can only play 16 and 18. You have to sit two somewhere along the line. This is by far the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Fans hate preseason football. Why? Because the good players don't play. They play for a drive or two, or maybe you get into the third quarter in the third game when it's at the dress rehearsal. 
and then you're playing guys who have no shot at making the team other than being backups and are not going to play again if things matter. With that knowledge, we now are going to a system where we want to put guys in who are backup preseason-worthy guys twice a year. Bad idea. Also bad because of the way the NFL schedule works in terms of marking the product. Imagine, let's you're, say you're a fan of, I don't know, the Tennessee Titans. You're a nice team, middle of nowhere. You get teams coming in. You get your normal teams coming in, your Colts, your Jaguars, your, your Texans. You get teams in the other league like once every eight years they come in your building. How would you feel if the Green Bay Packers were coming into town for the only time in about 16 years and they say, you know what? This is the week Aaron Rodgers takes off. You're not happy about that because you pay good money to see the Titans play Aaron Rodgers. Instead, you're getting the Packers playing the back of quarterback, which absolutely sucks. You gain nothing from this and you dilute the product, which is a huge problem. We've seen for years now, the NFL has a huge problem finding enough games to fill out these primetime packages. That Thursday night package, which the players hate, the fans hate, no one likes except for the NFL. We have so much trouble putting good games in that slot. We have so much trouble filling out Monday Night Football. ESPN gets a second race schedule every year. We are willingly putting backups in for extra games just to get that extra cash. Horrible, horrible idea. America loves football. America loves a lot of things, but there is an idea of simply having too much. And I think an 18-game schedule risks the owners killing the golden goose. You can have too much of a good thing. I want no part of 18 games. I feel the players don't. The fans don't. This is all the owners' pure greed. And I hope they realize that 18 games is a fast track to killing the NFL. It is way too much. There's not a good way to do it. Just leave it alone. All right, and that will do for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Sean Marash, for calling in to talk all about the Giants as they enter camp this week. I also want to thank Martino Puccio for his deep, deep dive into the Mariano Rivera discussion and giving us a sneak peek at his documentary, which is coming out this fall. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my review of the New York Nick offseason, check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher. Simply search for Just and the Suffering on any of those platforms and you will find the podcast there. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings as well in order to help make this show even better and help get it in the front of the eyes of more people who would enjoy it. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me at the hashtag Golden Goose. You made it at the end of this week's show. Next week... We're going into some more baseball talk. The trade deadline next Wednesday. We will be talking rumors at that point. Look at what's going on in the landscape. We'll be much closer to the deadline at that point. More baseball talk as well. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Tiger Woods. <laughs>